let's go inside under my skin you come around the other way a dream i have spent well that's a i think that's a great segue into our kind of brief discussion about you, you we you kind of we define what the acronym act means we've talked a little bit at a high level that it's in the cbt tradition um, and, and you've kind of given a, a bit of a, a preview that it talks a little bit about acceptance. It talks a little bit about mindfulness and a little bit about values. But if if I had to ask you to give me like a five-minute overview of the six-act six processes and kind of what ACT is about, not just in the processes, but what, what, what its flavor of therapy that may be a little bit different, why don't you go ahead, Jen, and just give us an overview of ACT? Oh, okay. Um, yeah, so I think the, the language around what, what the processes are or what kinds of um, the different sort of areas or domains that we focus on in treatment um, is, is a li- may sound a little like uh, jargon like or, or sort of weird terms that maybe people haven't heard before. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about them later and why we use some of those words. But So just bear with me because it may sound like stuff you've never heard before. Um, but the sort of the six main processes sort of the model works together as a theory um, works together to promote what we call psychological flexibility. And what that really means um, is helping people maintain meaningful behaviors in their lives, even when difficult thoughts or feelings or other what we call private experiences or experiences that happen inside the skin like thoughts or feelings or memories or sensations or physical sensations of pain or something like that, um, even when those things are present. Um, Now, that's a really simple way of talking about psychological flexibility because what it's not is saying suck it up and deal with the uncomfortable things that happen inside your skin. Just push through it. You can do it. It's not that kind of movement, that kind of move. It's really more about finding a way to change your relationship to difficult or uncomfortable or unwanted or painful experiences within inside your skin or your body or whatever you want to call it. Um, so, so a good chunk of these six processes focus on helping people identify what's happening on a thought, feeling, sensation, memory level. Um, and changing how they respond to those things when they happen. So, so for example, the acceptance process is saying, if you have these experiences that are happening inside your skin, what if it were possible to just allow them to be there without trying to change them? Because on the flip side, we call this experiential avoidance, which, which essentially means that a lot of people oftentimes try to avoid either doing certain things like maybe going out of the house or going to a party or or doing something that may be scary to avoid feeling a certain way. Like I may stay home if I'm feeling anxious about the place that I would otherwise go. Um, Like I'm too scared to go to that party, so I won't go because I'm trying to manage not feeling anxious, right? So what we talk about as flip side of that um, is acceptance, which is saying like what if it were possible to have anxiety be present and you could still go? It may be not as pleasant in the moment, 
to have that anxiety be present when you go to the party. But through the work and act, we try to help people um, practice that enough that anxiety isn't the only thing you're paying attention to when you're at the party. You're actually paying attention to the party and why you're there and what you care about there. So acceptance is one piece, learning how to just have whatever is present in the moment. Um, Just be there without trying to control it, make it better, struggle with it, make it less – less distressing just just more sort of letting it be there okay so let me so yeah so so just as a just as a summary so far the the pillar if there's if there's two words that sum up the goal of act it's psychological flexibility we want people to be a flexible repertoire of behaviors you know regardless hopefully of what they might be experiencing in terms of memories or thoughts or emotions or whatever yeah and and you just said that the first component that kind of serves towards developing psychological flexibility is acceptance and being willing to experience things um, and and not have them derail your life. Is that is that yeah. right? okay? Yeah. Yep. Okay. That's right. that's perfect. Okay. Um, I'm with you so some far. Some other yeah. Okay. Good. Um, some other some other uh, processes that sort of work together to build what we call psychological flexibility. This one's going to sound really crazy, but it's called diffusion. Okay. And what that means, yeah. <laughs> very non-technically, it's a very sort of it, it it gets at sort of technical stuff that we won't get into right now. But what it really means is saying. What if what if the fact that you know we have these thoughts that go through our minds all the time? What if what if we didn't have to take those so literally? What if we could literally say that's just something your mind is doing, and it may or may not be useful to listen to it? Right. So so a lot of work we do with diffusion says let's just notice the patterns of thinking that we tend to have. Mm. Like I as a person, I will self-disclose, tend to have thoughts like I'm not good enough, I can't do this, I don't really know what's going on, I don't know why people are asking me to do things because I can't do it, I'm, you know, et cetera, et cetera. If right. I were to listen to those, I might stay home, not do these podcasts with you, um, not have gone to grad school, not have done a lot of things in my life that are meaningful. Right. Because if I really believed them to be true um, as a real truth that's unchangeable, um, I might not do things that are meaningful. So what we try to do in ACT is, is move towards what we call diffusion, which is helping people get some distance from their thinking patterns. But not necessarily to change them. Like I can tell you after about seven years of doing ACT, I still have those thoughts mm-hmm. that I'm not good enough, that I can't do it. They just don't upset me as much. And right. I certainly don't listen to them a whole lot more than I used to. I used to listen to them more and maybe change my behavior because okay. of that. So that's another piece. So the diffusion is sort of okay. getting distance, breaking away from believing our thoughts to be true. So you don't have to – just because the mind says it doesn't mean it's true. Right. Uh, Distancing from these thoughts, feelings, and emotions, mm-hmm. and and realizing that behavior can be separate from what you're experiencing. You don't have to believe it. Yeah, exactly, okay. exactly. Okay. Um, so that moves us to another one, which we call the the self component of ACT. And this one's again a little bit geeky, but what we're going for in this one is we um, we talk about 
um, this sort of idea of conceptualized self as opposed to viewing the self as more of um, the observer of our experiences. Ooh, so ooh, this, this sounds, gets really philosophical, yeah, right? <laughs> this is really philosophical and talks a lot and, and may, may resonate with people who've ever done any kind of meditative work or anything like that. This idea of rather than having these sort of essentially a set of rules about who we are and what is possible for us, which we would consider sort of the conceptualized self, like I am a person who is a graduate student, who's a therapist, who is XYZ, right? Um, those things are sort of useful labels in certain contexts, but is not the whole experience of me. I, I'm also like the constant, and the hair sounds, alert, alert, this is really philosophical. <laughs> the constant is just my observation of what happens Form, like inside my skin and outside the world. So it's more like the, we take the stance that the self is really the observer mm-hmm. of all experience mm. um, and that it, it, it's not really a thing. It's just that perspective of observing and well, that that remains constant no matter what you struggle with. Some people might be able to identify this with their with their conceptions of a spirit or a soul. Mm-hmm. Is, is sure. that be a terrible sure. way for people to kind of start – thinking about this? I think think that can speak to that very easily. Uh, Again, we're talking, we're coming from a scientific platform, but, but in terms of how your personal experience of that may be very much in line with spirituality. And in fact, uh, Steve Hayes wrote a paper in 1984 called Making Sense of Spirituality that was very much about this idea. So, so yeah, it it can very much speak to that spiritual side and I'm a spiritual person and, and that piece sort of resonates the most with me. Okay. So it's this idea that you may experience thoughts, memories, feelings, emotions, etc., anxiety, but that there's a you behind that that's always observing and aware. And if you can build up an awareness of that and a strength of kind of personal awareness and identity, then when the thoughts and feelings and emotions and memories come and the pain, that doesn't necessarily have to become you or take you over because you're strong, your awareness of yourself is strong enough that those other things become more like darts that bounce off instead of chains that bind you. Is that kind of what you're saying? Ooh, yeah, I like the way you said that. Yeah, okay. yeah, I think that's that's a really a really nice way of thinking about it. Um, and and in order to get sort of all of these processes to practice them, acceptance, diffusion, this sort of observer self perspective. Um, well, we, we focus a lot in ACT, and here's the mindfulness piece, um, on what we call contact with the present moment, which is really about learning how to show up to what's happening right here, right now. Um, and, if, and if you think about yourself as that sort of observer place, what are you watching? You're watching thinking as a process. You're watching thinking as something that happens almost like a screensaver going across a computer screen. Right. Like it just sort of happens, something you can notice as a little bit distant from you. Um, you may notice certain emotions or sensations in your body, and those are useful sometimes to identify. Um, and you may notice things in your environment that are really important. Like if I'm like, I don't know if anyone listening has ever done this, but I do this unfortunately a lot. I'll be driving home and I won't have any memory of how I got home. Like I wasn't actually (laughs) what we would call present to, to my environment, um, really, or, or I would, I would say I was mindless and not paying attention to my environment because I was stuck in my head. Right. Right. That would not be contact with the present moment. That's stuck in what's happening in my head happened five minutes before or is about the future. So it's all past and future stuff. Like I'm thinking about what I'm going to cook for dinner. Am I home cooking dinner right now? 
No, I'm in the car. <laughs> so I'm in the future or the past rather than in the present. And this is something that all of us humans struggle with is this idea of being in the past or the future and not in the present. Um, and so what we really focus on is when you're doing something, can you show up to that that you're doing rather than getting caught up in your head or your experience of pain or your experience of sadness or your experience of whatever else might be happening for you? Like that may be there, but can you also like figuratively keep your hands on the steering wheel and pay attention to the road to drive home? Right. So, and so, yeah. so kind of this contact with the present moment, this mindfulness, this awareness, that's kind of, you know, like Eckhart Tolle used when I read him, you know, you don't have any power of the past. It's gone. The yep. future you may or may not even get. The yeah. only place, the only place where you have the potential to influence your life is in the present with, with the decisions that you have right in front of you staring exactly. at you. And exactly. So if you, so if you can cultivate that sense of awareness of the present moment, then you can uh, have the power to make big changes in your life instead of getting stuck in the past or future, right? Absolutely. And this, this transitions really well into the last two processes, which talk about um, behavior change. So can you identify, and this is something you, you work with therapists on or with, an, with self-help books really in detail, can you identify the areas of your life that are meaningful to you or domains of existence that are meaningful for you? So relationships perhaps, perhaps work or career, perhaps community building or perhaps, um, you know, whatever that may be for you. Um, can you identify areas that are meaningful for you and what you would like to be about in those areas? Um, and then from that place of identifying what we call the values within ACT, um, can you take steps to committing to, to living consistently with those things? So if I care about community building, that might mean going to some sort of meeting once a month to, to put some of those things into place um, or forming committees. Or, or if I care about relationships, it may, it may be choosing to spend certain times with, with family members or friends, um, but also you know, reaching out to them and, and connecting with them and sharing with them. So those are the things that like I would like to be about in caring about relationships and not just, you know, I'm going to spend time, but you can spend time and yell at people and that's not necessarily in service of what we really care about. So so that's sort of the whole model. We've okay. got values, committed action, um, and those four mindfulness processes of of that observer self, accepting sort of what is um, – getting some distance from thoughts as necessarily true or having to push you around or dictate what you do behaviorally. Um, and that contact with the present moment piece. Okay. So I'm going to just play devil's advocate for a second and say, on the one hand, this sounds really cool. On the other hand, it sounds really obvious. It's like, I am not my thoughts. You know, I don't have to let, you know, be positive. I don't have to let my thoughts and feelings overwhelm me. Just set some goals and then you can follow them. And, you know, a little bit of meditational mindfulness sounds really good. So, you know, if someone were to say to you, well, big deal, this sounds like rehashed, scrambled together stuff that we've already known and a bunch of platitudes that are very simple. Um, you know, what would you what would you say to that? Well, I think this, again, is why psychology sometimes seems like it's not scientific, because it sounds really obvious, but I will tell you, I practice this work myself in my own life, and it is one thing to say, 
I am not my thoughts. And another thing to really live my life in that way. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it's, it's actually and, – and for a lot of people who are, who are functioning very well, who are healthy, who are happy, I would say that probably they're doing a lot of these things just instinctively. And they've been able to just find paths that work for them. But for the people who walk in the door and asking for, ask for help, you know – Let's just take, for example, someone who has, say, panic disorder, which is a, a, a kind of anxiety problem where people will just have a panic attack, which is racing heart, uh, really fast breathing. People feel like they're having a heart attack. It is really unpleasant to have a panic attack. I've had one. It sucks. Right. And I had one like a year ago, and I've been doing this work for like seven years. And let me just tell you, even knowing what I know about this work, it was really hard to in the moment, recognize, be present, notice what was happening, be and really be willing to let it be there. Because it's really scary to have those things happening. Right. To feel like your heart is racing, to have the thought that you're going to have a heart attack and die. Right. And for me, I had, a, I had a panic attack in the middle of a long run in the middle of the wilderness and no one was around. I had no cell reception. So I you know, just amps up the process. So it's very difficult to do these things when it really matters um, for a lot of people. And for a lot of people, they do it great and can can live their lives meaningfully. But I would just say that if you're struggling with these things, you're not alone. And it may sound simple, but it takes a lot of practice. Right, right, right. Okay. And, and that's, that's been my experience as well, that, that living this is totally different than uh... – yeah. Being able to talk about it. And, yeah. that, and that sort of speaks to the experiential piece of ACT. So talk a little bit about uh, the experiential component to ACT. Yeah. I, I, don't, I hate the word experiential. Oh, sorry, actually. sorry, sorry. But no, no, it's okay. What's a better yeah, word? The only reason is because it, I think it sounds like such a psychologist word. Um, so what we mean when we say experiential is really the idea that your experience um, is important. Um, and, and your experience can be thoughts, feelings, stuff that's happening, memories, stuff that's happening inside your skin. So what we mean by experiential work is really just what's going on inside your body. Can you, can you identify that? Can we do exercises in the room together? Or if you're, if you're at home doing a self-help book or listening to something online, what are some things that you can do to practice relating to your experience in a different way so that it's not oh my god i'm having a panic attack i'm going to freak out and 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 get totally caught up in that experience and not be able to be present with what's really around me and, and move on in my life or worse stop doing things that might raise my heart rate because i'm afraid i'll have another panic attack which is exactly what happens in panic disorder Right. Totally understandable, but really a difficult step to take. So when we say experiential work, it's really just about there's no magic here. There's no there's no mystical thing that happens. We might close our eyes and, and, and practice relating to our experience in a different way, but that's really all it is. So it does get at that experience piece, but it's really just about how have you related to it before? What have you done when it's come up? And can we help you do something different so that you're able to live your life meaningfully? Gotcha. And and the only thing I just wanted to add is I, I remember, you know, because I have a technology background, when I when I started with Mike last year, I was like, well, Mike, why don't we just do a podcast or a, a little screencast where we do a PowerPoint presentation, we explain the six processes, 
share them with the world, and then everyone will know, act, and be able to apply it. And and Mike said, John, a lot of times when I do act, the word diffusion, the word self is con, the word self is context, never never show up. Yeah. He he said. Yeah. He said that what we try and do, and this is more for the therapists and clinicians who are listening than it is for others, but what we try and do is speak in the client's language, have it filter through their experience, their life language and framework. And then instead of it being heavily didactic, where you're sitting there speaking act and explaining it, they're not just conceptually learning it, they're actually doing exercises in therapy that demonstrate to them through their own frames, frameworks, that that these things uh, can can help them, and that that maybe is a more effective way to learn mm-hmm. than just kind of receiving the information and trying to go apply it outside of the therapy room. Is that true? Yeah, absolutely. I th- I'm glad you brought up the the thing about language because, you know, I, using some of these terms. Um, you know, it's it's exactly the reason we have those terms is for the science piece. It's it's to be able to have therapists have a common language and researchers to have a common language for what we mean by that piece of, you know, what is diffusion? Well, we have a technical definition of that to to some extent, and that's something that can be used to to help uh, researchers identify that and study it and see how it works. But from a clinical perspective, I don't ever use that word with my clients. And again, for that reason, because it's it's not useful to them. Um, you know, if they ask about what it's called, sure, I can talk about it. But um, again, right. it's it's that idea of just like what Mike said, this is about using the client's own experience with their own thoughts and feelings and how they've dealt with them and then seeing if these other ways of relating to those experiences may be helpful. Um, I, I love the way he talked about that, filtering it down into sort of a personal connection with it um, rather than us saying, we know the answer. We have a theory and a hypothesis about these six processes and psychological flexibility as being useful for a lot of different problems. Um, you know, there's been a lot of research to show that these these processes can help people who struggle with a wide range of difficulties, um, which is really cool. So we need that language for that science piece. But at that individual level with the person sitting across from me, it's more about who are you, what have you done, and how can I help you do something different? So yeah. Okay. Well, that, that's a really good segue for our next part, which is, so um, who's using ACT? Is it used by any big names or big institutions? Is it just, you know, a couple people in Reno do an act or is it a, is it a worldwide thing? And then we can talk about what disorders or conditions act is, is showing empirical um, effectiveness within. So who's using sure. act? Well, you know, it's actually very, very wide. It would take us a really long time to talk about everyone who's using it. But I said, I mentioned before that people all over the world are doing it. There are researchers in Japan. There are researchers all over Europe, um, in Ireland and the UK and Spain and France and um, Greece and uh, Australia and New Zealand and all over the United States and in Canada and South America and Mexico. So we've, we've got researchers all over doing the work and um, an, a nice uh, thing that we're seeing is that people are doing research in a way that's sort of what we call applied research, meaning we're looking at 
testing sort of act as a treatment for a problem or a, a particular um, process to inform treatment. Like we can identify like how does diffusion work and does this knowledge that we've gained help us treat people better? Um, so even if someone's what's called a basic scientist, that that work is really informing what we do um, at an applied level or sort of at, at the level of working with clients. Um, so it's being used all over the world. Um, but in, in the United States specifically, I would say the biggest sort of name uh, of institution who's using it right now is actually the, departments, uh, the Department of Veterans Affairs. Um, there's been a national, uh, what they call a rollout or um, uh, an initiative to train clinical psychologists and social workers uh, and basically clinicians um, to use ACT specifically right now with depression because that's where the first and most solid empirical support or the most data saying that ACT is effective um, has been shown to be effective with with depression itself. But also, uh, you know, we're seeing a lot of people coming home from Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, A lot of veterans are seeking treatment and there's unfortunately a really high rate of of what's called post-traumatic stress disorder or complex PTSD. Um, uh, And so a lot of folks who are being trained to do ACT are also using it with that population, even though there isn't quite as much data. I believe it's being studied right now um, to show, to see if it's, it's really effective broadly for, for PTSD. Um, But so, yeah, so the Department of Veterans Affairs, there are some uh, people in the ACBS world who are working in the VA who are um, really doing a nice job of, of, doing research and practice and checking up on how that treatment is being applied in the veterans affairs hospital systems all over the country. So um, if you're a veteran, you can probably get act (laughs) if you need, if you need psychological help um, somewhere in the country. Um, Then in terms of populations, uh, um, Oh, another, another piece just before I move into populations of of who it helps, uh, who also is using it is not just clinical psychologists with PhDs or, or PsyD degrees, but also um, social workers, nurses, even some medical doctors are, are starting to use uh, ACT more freely, more widely in um, even, you know, a broad range of settings, maybe that medical settings or community settings or everything. So it's not just uh, your typical who you'd consider a, a psychotherapist is using it. Um, also, um, there's been a movement within organizations to, to use ACT um, to help make the workplace a more uh less distressing and more meaningful place to reduce burnout in in employees and in workers, both in the healthcare field and just in business in general. So that's been some really exciting stuff. There's uh, people in the UK who are who are spearheading that. Um, so so there's a lot of interesting ways that ACT can be applied. Also, um, even at the community level, ACT is being used to help uh, children, families, schools, parents, just community level organizations to be more what we call psychologically flexible and to help people cope with difficult experiences more effectively in ways that we think may be more healthy based on the research. Um, so, so that's really exciting. How many How many members of ACBS are there? Uh, right now, there's about three thousand worldwide. Okay, so there's there's at least three thousand people who care about mm-hmm. uh, either either researching act or clinicians who w- would come to an annual conference yeah. to to learn about it. Um, yep. I'll just add that, like, I'd say there are university counseling centers at least all over the U.S. Mm-hmm. where this is being used. Private clinicians, as you talked about, um, you know, hospitals, mental hospitals. Uh, I, I know the International OCD Foundation, you know, considers ACT 
to be an important um, complement to exposure and ritual prevention. Um, I guess what I'm trying to say is it's it's becoming a, a major player within the CBT world, and it's it's becoming something that therapists all over the world are trying to to learn to put in their toolbox as a as a type of therapy to treat their clients. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, just to give a broad overview of the sort of traditional areas of, of clinical psychology that people are working and we have shown really good data or really good evidence that it can be helpful is substance abuse problems. Um, you mentioned OCD, um, anxiety problems. We already mentioned depression. Mm-hmm. Um, also helping people with psychosis, um, just manage having hallucinations and delusions and other kind of uh, psych- um, symptoms related to psychosis. Um, even personality disorder like borderline personality disorder or um, people who have difficulty relating to others. Um, uh, Even with parenting and couples and uh, working with children and families and the school systems, um, there's some early work in these areas, early work in eating disorders where we we don't have a lot of data there yet. Um, But there's also a lot of data in what's called the behavioral medicine area. So um, as an adjunctive treatment to medical treatment for coping with a chronic illness, whether that be chronic pain or fibromyalgia or um, trying to lose weight um, or managing diabetes, um, also with smoking cessation. So there's a lot of work in what's called behavioral medicine as well. And that's where a lot of the strongest data is coming out right now. Yeah. And so when we talk about this, for those who aren't familiar with the research process, we're not just saying ACT can be used with with any type of condition. What we're saying is that there are laboratories, psych, clinically, clinical psychology research laboratories at universities or hospitals throughout the world that are doing, you know, randomized controlled trials or other types of, you know, empirically supported studies where they compare where they where they measure the effectiveness of act and where they compare the effectiveness of act to other um, potential treatments or to pharmacological treatments and they're producing data that show that 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 act can can help in these conditions right yeah yeah and I'd like to add that you know this is an ongoing process doing research and that we're not making the statement that we think that ACT is cool and therefore everyone should do it everywhere, um, or that even the data coming out say that ACT is the best treatment for these things. It's just the data say that it it can work for these problems, but there are a lot of other things that can work for these problems as well. So we're not at all advocating that ACT has to be the first treatment that people are given in any of these any of these settings, um, but more just saying that it, it can play. It has it has a place and that um, maybe it might be something to consider um, if you're learning about psychology or if you're learning about becoming a treatment provider or if you're wanting to become a researcher, that this is something maybe to pay attention to because it certainly seems like it's broadly applicable for a lot of areas and may, um, you know, if, if, if clients have an interest in, in uh, approaching their, their problems from this perspective, it may be really useful. Right, right, and so, um, well, that's really that's really helpful. Um, well, let's let's now turn a little bit to talk about ACBS and and why ACBS matters. And you know, Mike Mike Tuig told me from the very you know first point that I met him, he said, John, you know, the minute that I or, or the others of us in ACBS were able to f- come up with a better treatment or a better way of doing things. It's not about act. It's about doing good science, 
coming up with good treatments and and helping people in the best way that we can. ACT is just maybe our first, as an ACBS community, maybe our first attempt at, at coming up with a, with a solid approach. So let's Absolutely. step back, talk a little bit about the founding of ACT and the founding of ACBS and, and what ACBS is all about. Okay. Um, well, I think at its core, I mean, if we look at the word Association for Contextual Behavioral Science, um, there's a lot of pieces inside what why this scientific organization came together. But what ACT really stands on, we talked about it being a cognitive behavioral therapy, um, and, and what ACBS really stands for in terms of science is really about this idea of behavior change. It's a science of behavior change. And so what that really means is um, – we want to understand how behavior works and how we can best set up things in the environment or practice things such that we're able to change behavior for a particular goal. So that's really what ACT is at, is at its core. And we just see um, these areas where people tend to get stuck and have difficulty in making behavior change that's meaningful. Um, because of these sort of private experiences that happen that can be difficult. And ACBS is really about the science of behavior change. It's it's about understanding these things and how we can best influence um, ourselves and our clients to, to live more healthily from I, a scientific standpoint. I should just jump in. I'm, I'm learning about this, but you know there there was sort of Freudian psychodynamics. We'll be doing a whole podcast sort of that really touches on the history of all this. But mm-hmm. you know, as I understand it, there was kind of this big wave of Freudian psychodynamics. And then Skinner, Skinner came around and did this behaviorism stuff, and, and Pavlov and Skinner about dogs and behaviorism and rats and all that stuff, and, <laughs> and babies in boxes, yeah. <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm skipping yeah. over a lot of stuff, but then, yeah. but then there was this this sort of movement into cognitive therapy, where it it moved to being about thoughts and helping people challenge and reinterpret their thoughts mm-hmm. and so that they could live more meaningful lives exactly yeah to and, change the behavior mm-hmm. and then people said well let's combine them let's do behavior and and thought kind of stuff and that's kind of where cbt came around but but maybe where where act sort of differentiated itself and there are others that that were a part of this and we'll talk about that as well but it, it turns out that trying to change thoughts can be problematic and mm-hmm. so, and so, why the emphasis on behavior? It's not that thoughts are irrelevant. It's that sometimes uh, the worst thing you can do to try and loosen a thought's uh, grip on your life is to proactively try and attack it or change it mm-hmm. or alter it. Mm-hmm. And so, ACT is less concerned about what you're thinking. ACT's focus is on how you're living. And if you can live a meaningful life and have those thoughts coming, that's okay. But if we had to come down on one side, we're more concerned about your behavior and how you're living than whether or not you can get your thoughts exactly right. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that's a really a really nice way of of covering that really at a, at a, at a very basic level. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I think, you know, so so ACT was sort of developed, um, just do a quick history lesson. Um, so we mentioned Steve Hayes earlier, who's my advisor here at UNR, um, but he he worked with a number of other individuals. And, and even though the sort of first ACT book 
that was published in 1999 um, was published with uh, Kirk Strassel and Kelly Wilson, which were uh, Kelly was one of his students and Kirk was a colleague up in Seattle, actually, um, where I will be soon. Um, <laughs> and and um, the three of them wrote the book, but it was actually based on work that had been done here at UNR um, and, and up in Kirk's work up in Seattle um, through a lot of different people's input. So it wasn't just those three people who were doing this work. And they were taking that perspective, exactly what you were just saying that this idea of challenging thoughts may not be uh, the most useful way to go. This this idea of trying to get thoughts under control in order to change behavior was necessarily the way to go. Right. And so they were doing this work in the early 80s even. One of the first ACT studies was actually not called ACT. It was called Comprehensive Distancing with Rob Zettel, who's now a faculty member um, in Kansas. And um, they were looking at that very piece and they saw some dis- some interesting things there. Um, that didn't quite sort of map on to what what we, they were hoping for in terms of outcomes, that the idea of this changing the thought wasn't really helpful, but maybe changing your relationship to the thought would right. be more helpful for, right. for some people. So um, again, not to say CBT in that form isn't helpful for some people. It is. It's just that it isn't helpful for everyone all the time. Right. Um, so that's how research really began. And it really started looking at that cognitive piece. And so a lot of the work in Steve Hayes' lab in the 80s and, and mid-90s was was actually not so much on the act side, but more on the underlying theory about language and thinking or cognition um, called relational frame theory. And and let me just let me just yeah. pause you for a second. So, so it was great that there was this treatment that was potentially going to help people, but it sounds like Steve and, and others kind of asked the question: Well, we don't want to be selling a treatment until we understand why it works and what and yeah. what what the the treatment is based upon, so that we have a theoretical framework and an understanding of process to then. Uh, you know, know why the treatment's working and, and how it how it works, right? Exactly. Okay. Or we, we call that sort of a bottom-up approach. Um, we're taking the approach that we want to understand what's happening sort of at the bottom floor before we get up to the top floor, which is intervention or, or psychotherapy. Right. Gotcha. So, so that's essentially what, what Steve... Steve's lab did and a lot of other labs in the country here um, were focusing on in that time was more understanding the sort of basic, sort of really geeky, <laughs> basic theory kind of, of research. And it was really interesting, the kinds of things they found. Um, and when we talked to Steve and some other folks in, uh, throughout the podcast, when we talk about the history and development of ACT, we'll get into a lot, a lot more of that. Um, but so then, so folks saw that there was a science that could underlie this therapy that, yeah, they thought was cool, but they wanted to be, you know, thoughtful about how they applied it and, and you know, uh, be responsible about applying it with, an, with some kind of understanding of what was happening sort and, of at the bottom floor level. And, I, and, and I, that's still an ongoing process, even and, though the, the treatment's been being done since about 1999. And I kind of cut you off, but, but some of the underpinnings of ACT are, you said, relational frame theory. And uh, something called functional contextualism. Is that right? Ooh, you just brought out the big FC. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's a whole other podcast that okay. we talk about. Uh, uh, that's, that's a philosophical standpoint or, or knowing what your sort of assumptions are about how you view the world. Um, so that's a fun and exciting journey for another day. But, okay, okay. Uh, but yes, it definitely takes a philosophical stance of, of, of seeing the world in a particular way. Okay. Uh, but in terms of the therapy, so people were uh, – 
as the therapy was being developed, so too was this underlying treatment, uh, this underlying, excuse me, this underlying basic science that was very much founded on sort of uh, uh, B.F. Skinner's behaviorism, although it was a modern approach to that, uh, that that dealt with thinking in a different way that than Skinner ever really did. Uh, at least Steve and some other folks would argue that. Um, but so ACT started to be being done in in counseling centers and hospitals and other areas in private practice, and people started testing it. And then around in 2005, 2006, we had uh, a major conference that took place in London, and, and, and prepping up for this conference, we called it the World Conference. Sounds kind of awesome and ominous. <laughs> um, at that time, it was the ACT and RFT World Conference. Um, they There was some thought about building a, a a scholarly society that would support the development of ACT, but also the development and ongoing development of this underlying basic science of RFT and these sort of behavioral principles. Um, So ACBS was really founded as a way to, to continually marry the applied side of science with the basic side of science, which is something that is really rare in, as, as a scientific endeavor. Like even in biology and chemistry, a lot of the times the applied is separate from the basic uh, work um, and they don't often inform each other. Um, so, so this was the intention of this ACBS community was to develop a society of folks who were interested in progressing science of psychology and particularly the big functional contextualism word you threw out there, contextual science but also behavioral science, because that's also where we stand. And there's a sort of set of values for even within that community of of people within the scholarly organization, which is our value is to help people. And and sometimes the best way to help people is by understanding how the therapy works at a really basic level. Uh, and, And to be thoughtful about dissemination and be thoughtful about research. Um, certainly the research endeavors within ACBS are not perfect. And we've gotten a lot of criticism from other other folks. But the attempt is there to be what we call lateral instead of hierarchical, meaning, you know, Steve Hayes, even though he may be sort of the most known person in ACT, is not ACT. And he's not ACBS. There is so much more to this work than just him and just his opinion and just his theory or his books or his understanding of what we're doing, that it invites everyone to participate as from, you know, student or newcomer, new therapist. It invites people to participate and shape the work. Um, from all levels. And and we really try to be open and listen to what people have to contribute, but also have a shared goal, which is um, really progressing science forward, Um, even though that's a really difficult and slow process. Okay. So we've got, we've got some, some theoretical and philosophical and and science-based underpinnings to act that are embedded within ACBS. And we have a bunch of scientists and researchers trying to, uh, trying to pursue and, and extend and advance that research in kind of a egalitarian framework. Is that right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's pretty much it. And, you know, one thing that is kind of interesting, we talked, I mentioned before that something about ACT that's cool is that uh, the therapist takes the stance that, you know, all humans share uh, in a, a shared experience of being human. So too does the, the scholarly society of ACBS take the perspective that, um, you know, the principles of psychological flexibility and all these processes we talked about in the therapy 
show up and we work towards in the society. We try to be psychologically flexible within the society itself. So, right. so that's something that's really kind of cool. Okay, and I and I've been to this conference twice now, and it's a great, great group of people. So, um, we hope that some of our listeners will join us someday at one of the ACBS conferences um, that's yeah. held. Okay, so anything else you want to say about ACBS before we kind of wrap up and and talk about what people can expect going forward? Um, not much, just that it's a it's a society that anyone can join. Um, you don't have to be a practitioner. Um, although we do we do sort of cater on the the scholarly side towards anyone who's um, working in any kind of health related field, um, it's it's just a cool place to be. So we we hope that as you listen to our podcast, that this society becomes something you're more and more interested in joining. There's a lot of um, free resources that people in the society give away. Um, this is not a group of people who are writing ACT protocols that you then have to pay to buy. We don't charge for any of our measures. We don't charge for any of our protocols. We don't charge for really almost anything except for books that we publish through a publisher. <laughs> and that's because the publisher published them and has to make money. Um, so there's a lot of stuff we give away for free so that anyone can learn it. Anyone can be doing it with their clients. And there is a movement and we're trying to be better at this, at helping people um, do this work on their own. There's a few self-help books that are out there and a few of them have been researched to, sh to see if doing that book is helpful. We don't want to just put stuff out there necessarily that um, we don't know to be helpful. Um, so, so there's a lot of cool stuff happening and it's always constantly changing and growing. So there's a lot of cool, cool reasons to come back to, to the website and, and the society and conferences each year to see what's changing and growing. Okay, great. Well, um, so, so far we've kind of introduced people to this, to this episode. We've talked about yours and my history a bit. We've talked about ACT and ACBS. Um, but this is just the beginning, right? Yeah. So let's, I'm so excited. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So let's talk about what we're, what we're really going to do in the next, let's just say 20 to 30 hours, if, if we can get that far. Um, let's, let's talk about what this, um, what this series is going to be. Um, do, do you want to give an overview? Sure. Um, so what we hope to cover is to give you a sense of how ACT was developed. So what is the sort of historical context for how ACT came about? Um, how did RFT come about? What is what is this functional contextualism thing? And what is really contextual behavioral science? Um, um, so it'll be a little bit geeky, but hopefully a lot, a lot fun because um, it, it, there's a lot of interesting uh, political, historical, interesting facets of how this work came about that you might find interesting as you're learning about this work. Okay. Um, okay, let me pause you for a second. So so I guess our, our, our listeners can expect kind of a journey where mm -hmm. we're going to take them in sequence through kind of almost a narrative, and we're going to start with the history and the underpinnings of ACT. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. And then, and then from there – We'll, we'll step into what it's like to really do ACT. Um, so for the practitioners out there, this could be really cool where we're going to talk about and get into more depth of the processes in the model, which we talked about briefly today, those six processes that together make up what we call psychological flexibility. And we're hoping to get um, a lot of uh, different people's input on what those things might mean and also how, how it looks to do ACT. Um, and we hope to put some of those things out there for you, um, some of the exercises um, that people use when they're doing the therapy. 
So we could, so they can expect at least a deep dive on each of the six processes, an, mm-hmm. epi- an episode in and of itself, where we where we talk about the process, we talk about how to approach it, and and we give examples so that people can have lots of rich materials to be able to to handle each process effectively. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, and then I think from there we're going to move towards. What are some of the common problems that ACT has been applied to where there's some um, evidence that it's been helpful? Um, And so we'll interview some of the people who've been um, most um, influential in in doing the work in that area. And so so you'll get a sense of sort of what it's like to apply ACT to those particular problems and to helping people who might be struggling with those things from anxiety to any of those behavioral medicine issues we talked about, depression, et cetera. Um, And so what will give you a flavor of what that might be like. Um, And then from there – So a deep dive. So like we could see a whole hour on ACT for depression, ACT for OCD, ACT for eating disorders – Act for couples, act for, you know, parent training. Is that kind of what you mean? Yeah, that's okay. what we're shooting for. With with whoever, um, an expert or two from, from that field mm-hmm. per episode. Okay. And and then finally, what we'll, we'll do is really, once you've gotten sort of a, a much better understanding of, of what ACT is, how it's been developed, and how it's been applied to some common problems, sort of coming back full circle to this idea of, this society of the association of contextual behavioral science. What is contextual behavioral science? And when we're saying that there's this meaningful piece here about science and, and progressing what we're researching and what we're doing and how we can make sure what we're doing really is helping people where they need it. Um, we're going to hopefully get some podcasts uh, with folks who are sort of thinking outside the box a little bit, um, moving beyond just the application of the therapy to the real world environment, the real world clinical environment where, you know, you're not getting somebody who's been trained in ACT for seven years in a clinical psychology PhD program where you're getting someone who's trained somewhere else and is on the ground doing real work and doesn't have time to do that kind of training. How can we help um, bring those processes uh, to those folks? Uh, Basically act throughout the international community. We'll talk again about this idea of RFT and why a clinician might actually care about it. Um, right. Even though it sounds really super geeky, why you might actually want to know about that as a, as someone who's a practicing clinician. We'll also talk about something that is a term I'd never heard before, which is philosophy of science. Those things never really seem to go together in my in my right. head, but right. there is such a thing as philosophy of science and mm. what that might mean and why we might care about that. Um, also, criticisms, future directions in the research, um, what kind of research is going on and where we see the, the continuation of research search to be happening over the next few years. I think that criticism just do a whole episode on people's problems with act and where it doesn't mm-hmm. work and what's wrong with it and yeah. where it falls short. That would be, that would be a great thing to do too. Absolutely. We're humble. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <we> cool. <laughs> so, so I guess, I guess this could seriously end up being a good 20, 20 hours at least of uh of a deep dive, there's kind of a historical value, I think, to what we're trying to do. Hopefully there's a deep practical value for, for, you know, individuals, people seeking help for people, um, for clinicians and for researchers. Uh, you know, we're hoping that all those groups of people can find some value from, from what we hope to give you. Yeah, I hope so too, John. This will be a fun journey. Okay. So, so let's just give people, uh, some final thoughts on what they should and shouldn't expect from from this series. 
it's it's sounding a little bit like you know we what we want to probably want to try to avoid is that we're selling act as the way or as some religious kind of movement so set us expectations <laughs> set our expectations there oh goodness well yeah and and it's it's a hard line to walk when you're really passionate about something to not sound like you think it's the best thing since sliced bread and and i hope that you and i will practice walking that line because you know, a, a major tenet of of the work is to is to examine where we're what we're doing, where we're going, and are we being helpful? And are we being helpful in a really meaningful way? And so, um, we're not taking the stance that ACT is the thing, or that it's the best thing, or that everyone should do it, or everyone should even care about it. We're simply taking the stance of there's some cool stuff out there, there's some cool data that says that maybe this is helpful, and there's a lot of people suffering. And we hope that what we can learn from this is how to continue to progress science past even ACT or, or even ACBS, but that the values we're hoping to talk about really extend beyond this exact kind of intervention or treatment as a model. So it's more about what do we care about as a, as a human society um, and, and how can we sort of take steps in that direction, even if they're imperfect necessarily in the beginning. So ACT and ACBS as approaches, not as the approaches to uh, mm-hmm. mental health. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so if somebody, if somebody tunes in to uh, an episode on acceptance or on act for OCD, should they expect that that's the last word in the definitive treatment? Absolutely not. Okay. Again, that, that, that value of that lateral society, um, means that this work is continually changing and growing to meet the needs of the people we serve. And so a lot of different voices can, can do the same process in a lot of different ways. Um, and we really hope to, to show some of the voices and some of the perspectives on how to do some of these works, but as examples and as hopefully a starting point, if you're a practitioner, to, to play with it and do it in your own way with your own voice. So it's certainly not the be-all end-all, but more a place to start and a place to, to have some foundation of learning before you go and try it out on your own. Okay. And then and then with that, I just want to maybe offer a third point about what people can expect. We want people's participation. You know, this is a Web 2.0 world. You know, we, we want to, when we post these podcasts, we want there to be a place where people can have discussions, provide feedback, tell us we're full of garbage, tell us that we're wrong, tell us that we're right, give additional examples, reinforcement. And so when we post these to the contextualpsychology.org slash podcast uh, domain name or website. We want to invite people to come up and share their opinions and thoughts. We also want to invite people, if there's a certain episode that they would, would like us to cover, if, they're, if they want to be a part of an of a episode, if they um, you know, want to give us metaphors or examples of where the, you know, these different topics have worked or haven't, um, you know, we want this to be very community-based and per- participatory, and we want to invite people to give us any and all feedback and to join with us in this podcast and exploration so that it's it's a community thing. It's not just the Jen and John show. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. We, we're two voices uh, in, in a very international chorus, and, and we want, you know, others to share their voice and, and for, uh, you know, we're, we're sort of one lens, one perspective, and we hope that we can incorporate a lot of other perspectives and feedback and um, 
just make this meaningful for as many people as we can. So we want ACBS members to join us in this journey, and we want non-ACBS members, just regular people in the street or clinicians, uh, to come on and 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 to be a part of what we do throughout the release of these you know twenty plus episodes over time, right? Yeah. Okay. Bring it on. Okay. <laughs> so tell us the tell us the the address of this uh, podcast again. Sure. Again, it's a little bit long, but it's www dot contextual psychology dot org slash podcast and let me spell that out for you so it's c o n t e x t u a l p s y c h o l o g y dot org slash podcast okay and that's where we'll release these um, regular episodes you know we hope i think ideally we would do one a week it may take us a little bit of time to kind of get up and running it may be every other week for a little while but we hope that there's a frequency with which we'll release these episodes we want to get the biggest names and the coolest people to be guests to help us in this conversation along with anyone else who wants to join in in terms of levels of expertise or whatever and they can expect that we'll release these podcasts with some frequency. There will be opportunities for comments on the on the released podcast episode so that people can have discussions there. And then there maybe we'll set up an email address where people can email us and give us feedback through email as well. Their ideas, their feedback, their complaints, their their kudos, whatever they want to do. And we don't have that email address yet. But um, by the time we release this, we will have um, uh, that email address posted to the very first episode. And my guess is that we can do podcast at contextualpsychology.org. Does that sound like it might work? We might be able to get that, yeah. Yeah. Or We're maybe in the middle we'll, of tech, tech changes to our website, so things are a little slow, but yeah. Or maybe we'll, we'll, we'll grab act, act in context at, at gmail.com. We'll do one of those two, but we'll figure yeah. that part out later. Cool. Okay. Well, Jen, any, any parting words for our listeners before we end this, this first inaugural episode? I feel like we are heading on a really cool journey, and I hope that you stick in there with us because um, as we progress through this, and John and I learn from each other, actually, um, and talking about this work, that this will be meaningful, interesting, and that your your participation in it will help shape it to be something useful for you wherever you're at and whatever your, whatever your walk of life is. So. I'm looking forward to the future, John. All right, Jennifer Plum. Well, uh, you've been a, a fabulous uh, co-host. I appreciate all the wisdom you've uh, you've shared with us today and your insight. And uh, to our listeners, thank you so much for joining us today on Act in Context podcast. Please share this with your friends and family. Facebook it, Twitter it, uh, blog about it, do whatever you have to do to kind of spread the word. And um, again, this is John DeLynn signing off with Jennifer Plum, and we'll talk to you guys very soon. We'll see you soon. Take care. The Act in Context podcast is a production of the Association for Contextual Behavioral Science. Please check us out at contextualpsychology.org slash podcast. Music was brought to you by Armory.